It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What's Real podcast. This is producer Cam once again as we roll into our second week of the What's Real September specials. This month, Hey Ed and the Jay are taking some time off, and we're going to bring you some specials from the best of the What's Real podcast. Last week was Thursday Night Prime. This week is going to be the original, unoriginal segment from the What's Real podcast, The Movies That Made Us. We're going to listen to conversations about the films Gummo, Kids, Rambo First Blood, and The Naked Gun. So this week is going to be the best of the movies that made us. Once we get into October, our regularly scheduled programming will resume with Hey Ed and the J kicking off that Halloween season. So we hope you enjoy this week's special, The Movies That Made Us, as we roll into some gummo conversation. And we're back, and it is time for the season three finale of Fridays at midnight here on the show. Uh, and today we go back to 1997 with director Harmony Corinne's Gummo. Solomon and Tumblr are two teenagers killing time in Xenia, Ohio, a small town that has never recovered from the tornado that ravaged the community in the 1970s. Um, now, of course, because it's a Harmony Corinne movie, that's just the baseline of what the hell's happening here. The movie really has nothing to do with that. It's just that that's the type of people that they're showing you. Um, the movie is almost in documentary format-ish, even though it's not a documentary. Um, it has this movie, by the way, might have the most interesting mix of non-actors and actors. And I don't know if you realize this, DJ. Like, I'm pretty sure you know Chloe Savigny. Of course, this, right? Yeah. Like, that's you know, that's pretty obvious. Yep. Um, but there's some weird ones here. Uh, do you know who Max Perlich is? I know he is in the, the movie. So he's the dude. His, he plays Cole. In the movie. Uh, Drugstore Cowboy, Ferris Bueller's Day he, Off. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's in a ton of shit. He's in Gleaming, Gleaming the Cube. Cube. That's yeah, a, yeah. That's but, another one. Yeah, I remember him. Uh, but he is the dude in the movie that basically pimps out his sister that has Down syndrome. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Mark Gonzalez who is one of the dudes wrestling a chair, uh, who is one of the greatest skateboarders of all time. Um, and this this might be my favorite, but Solomon's mom is played by Linda Manns, dude. I don't know if you know who Linda Manns is. She's in a handful of movies, probably most famously known for Out of the Blue yeah. with uh, Dennis Hopper. She's also in the, game. the Wanderers. I don't know if you have you ever seen The Wanderers. Yeah. Please tell me you've seen The yep. Wanderers. But seen the Wanderers. she's in that. Like she's really a very acclaimed actress. She's also in Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven too. Uh, but she plays Solomon's mom in this, and she's super fucking weird, but she's great in it. Uh, and then the whole mixture of the you know Jacob Reynolds as Solomon, uh, Nick Sutton as Tumblr. Uh, just an overall bizarre fucking movie. Jacob Sewell is the bunny boy. Um, it's a total non-linear kind of movie where they're just showing you... Like, dude, I've seen somebody compare it like this, and I think it's a really weird but accurate comparison. This is like 
if kids was made in like middle America type thing. Yeah. Like in the Appalachian like communities and places like like that's kind of what this is. Yeah. No, that's a good comparison. And and obviously the correlation with the involvement of Harmony Corinne with kids too, you know, so it would make sense. Yep. I mean, it's, you know, and that, and that's the thing, like, you know, one of the biggest factors for me w- with films is like you getting taken and sucked into a world. And that's one thing about this. It is like its own world. You know, it's almost one of those things. It's like, like you mentioned, it's almost shot as a documentary, but it's almost in a way like a fantasy, you know, it's, it's kind of yeah. like that kind of art to it. It, well, see, I would take it to another. To me, it's not a fantasy. It's like a fucking nightmare. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's true too. It's, and, and I'm and I'm not. It's no, fucked. I'm not even, yeah. Like, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's a nightmare. Like, this is so they're portraying a life that these people have, and it's like, dude, it's it's fucking atrocious. Everybody's either really poor, insane, or just fucking weird. Uh, Harmony Corinne, by the way, had his cameo with uh, him and the little person where he's just drunk talking on the couch. Yeah, like, it's, like when, uh, it's, fu- it's funny as shit. Yeah, like it's really funny. Wikipedia breaks down an intoxicated man flirting with a gay dwarf. Uh, as you mentioned, a man pimping his disabled sister to Solomon and Tumblr. The sisters encountering an elderly child molester, a pair of twin boys selling candy door to door conversation with the tennis player who is treating his adhd like it just goes on and on and of course oh, like, one of my favorite parts the skinhead brothers boxing each other all realistically in the kitchen like they're having yeah, like a while, decent boxing match and while we're at it let's add in the scene where our lead characters basically string up and whip dead cats <laughs> yeah. um they're not real but like don't way. shoot that so one it's, it's, it's that one's a house cat <laughs> Yeah, like, dude, there's there's a lot of fucked up shit at the core of this movie, but it's really like an interesting portrayal of human life type thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like in an in an environment that nobody really is familiar with. Um, but like, dude, of course, I got I always go to to Letterboxd whenever I see some good shit about a movie, and like, there's a few things that like like so this is just somebody named Patrick on here. This movie feels like a wet garbage bag, which I understand what they mean by that. Uh, this is another one. Amaya said, sometimes life is gummo and you're a cat. <laughs> that's so that's a good another one. one. Yeah. Uh, let's see. There's a few other ones. Another one. This is from Jeff Borislow. I mean, I get it, but I don't enjoy it, <laughs> which is understandable. Yeah, it's a tough and watch. Then, this is another one somebody unfortunately i can't pronounce their name the film looks great but i don't know it smells bad i don't know how a film can smell bad but this film smells bad (laughs) that's great and then it was an ivy wolk says weirdo shit but i love chloe savigny's boobs yeah so that's good and i i agree so i had to throw that in there too but like yeah it's this movie's weird as fuck it's supposed to be weird as fuck but like it's a goddamn massive achievement in weirdness though like it's fucking really good in a lot like in the most unexplainable type ways like it's well put together the editing and it's really well done like they of course in harmony Corinne shit he always like does that you know there, there's like camcorder footage like in, spliced, in, spliced in. yeah 
the, there's just different weird themes where like you know of like you know the living poor with, like there's always like weird shit like bicycles yeah. in his movie <laughs> really really good music too in this really good soundtrack yeah, for like the scenes the, they fit very opening by the way awesome with uh when they're the kids are coming on the street on the bikes yep. and they're pumping sleep yeah uh I've seen Sleep Live, and they're tremendous. It's the loudest shit I've ever seen, but they were great. But it's I always forget that they're in this movie for some reason, and it's probably like the best musical scene in the whole movie. Um, yeah, it's really cool. But, but yeah, like really fucked up themes, but like it has a an atmosphere to it for sure. Yeah, yeah, like that's, that's why I, like. I said like it it feels like a wet garbage bag is a good way to describe it because like the whole movie is kind of like oddly damp and rainy and just like gross yep. and shitty like there's not a lot of sunshine or like well lit. like it's just them in gloomy fucking weather which the movie was shot in Nashville but like it doubles very well for Ohio because it's just like we our weather is it's just yeah, gloomy it's and shot. shitty most of the time yeah. but yeah i mean Dude, do you remember the first time you saw Gummo? Yeah, I think it was one of those ones that, that you were mentioning. Because I, I I told you when we picked this for Fridays at Midnight, uh, or your choice, and you brought it up, that I had last seen it in college. Like, I specifically remember that, you know? And, and that's what I said. I'm like, man, I haven't watched that since. So I was trying to track it down. And I did find it on, on Vimeo and got to rewatch it, like, right before talking about it. So that worked out perfect. But yeah, I remember the first time, like when we were kind of first falling into films and you're, you're kind of into more things when you're younger and then obviously your tastes develop and all that. And so of course my college years, my taste for what I was getting into in film was as, as you are as a filmmaker, Hey Ed, where you're down, you're very open-minded, you're down to try anything. And at times even challenge yourself to go and watch something that's completely out of your wheelhouse. And that's, that's something like Gummo. Cause that's before I knew too much about Harmony Corinne, as we talked about always loved kids and, and first watched that in high school. But yeah, I, I just remember being blown away by Gummo and just really at the end of it thinking like, I, I think I like that, you know, like you said, because it's just such a nasty movie in a lot of ways. And especially back when I was, you know, in my early 20s, it, it was something that was pretty heavy. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those movies that'll catch you off guard if you don't know what you're getting into. Um, I had an ex-girlfriend actually bring this one to my attention in my early 20s. Like she just had a copy on VHS and I was like, OK, and like I knew I like kids already. Like I was a big fan of kids. And she was too. So it was like, all right, watch this. And I was like, okay. And like, oh fuck, this movie's weird as shit. (laughs) But like, but dude, there was like, I I have like time periods of really cool, like film discovery. And that was like my early twenties was was a good one for like a lot of weird shit, like off the beaten path stuff. And like, that's still a time period too, where like you're going to the theater a lot. Like you're in your early 20s, so like you have a lot of friends or like dates or whatever. Like there's a million reasons to go to the movies, at least when we were 21, right. 20, you know. Definitely. So like, and then there was like, and you know, we've been lucky too. Like Pittsburgh's always had a bunch of like art house cinemas and shit like that. So like there was a possibility of catching Gummo like in the theaters and shit around here. I didn't, of course, but uh, but yeah, definitely got f- more familiar with it on video and and of course dvd uh but always been one of my favorite like weirdo classics like i absolutely love gummo i think it's a fucking brilliant movie 
uh, because do, you've never seen anything like Gummo. Yeah, and you're never going completely to. unique. Uh, the the pre production is yeah. a pretty cool story. Hey, Ed, before we wrap, uh, I could break it down for you real quick. Get your take on some of this uh, from one of our internet sponsors, Wikipedia, of course, straight from the source. Uh, but in writing Gummo, Harmony Corinne abandoned traditional three act plot structure and worked to avoid creating characters of a clear cut moral dimension in favor of a collage like assembly. Uh, Corinne focused on forming interesting moments and scenes that when put in succession would become its own unique narrative. So that was kind of like his blueprint for how he's going to try to put this together as a very unconventional film. And it goes on to say to justify such a chaotic assembly, Corinne set his film in Xenia, Ohio, which had been hit by a tornado in 1974. So it kind of sets up what we've kind of been breaking down, which is that atmosphere you were saying, where it is kind of like a fantasy nightmare kind of thing you know around the rural you know kind of weird little rural city well dude you know what that reminds me of like because i've heard this about corinne kind of like say that stuff about his own work but to me that sounds like an italian movie yeah because like that, that's how a lot of like italian shit is like it's just non it's non-linear it doesn't have the plot structure like everything else does it's basically just like a collection of sh- weird shit that happens but like you know why the people you're watching are where they are and you kind of understand what happens at the end or sometimes they don't really even explain that they just leave it kind of like ambiguous but usually that means that what you're seeing is so like heightens the senses that it's memorable and it doesn't matter yeah And that's not easy to do because you either have to be like hyper violent, super sexual, or you have to make something like gummo, like, which dude, you can set out yourself. You could be like, I'm ripping gummo off. And I'd be like, good fucking luck. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't know how you would even come close to trying to replicate anything even remotely encompassing what this movie is. It's impossible. Yeah, that's kind of where the pre-production story wraps up as it says to help harmony with his vision he sought out and as we say on the show french cinematographer jean yves esquivel in his work on leo carax de Pournat, made a tr- made a tremendous impression on him and escoffier who liked the script worked on gummo for a fraction of his usual rate so he helped uh you know with the budget there uh just because he was so into the project which is always cool to hear uh to get like this classic french cinematographer involved in this as well yeah for the look i mean dude that and that's one of the things too because like we've talked about this off the air you know me like i'm a general fan of harmony corinne uh mainly because he's always like one of those few people out there that are like off the beaten path of film like there's a handful of those guys. like richard stanley's kind of like that to me uh the guy who made the nicholas cage fucking lovecraft you know yeah color color of space Yes, color space. So, like, just people that are out there making good stuff, but like, not really doing it within the studio system. Yeah, Constantine really doing, you know, like right, right in with that. That did, uh, you know, Cage again with Mandy. Yeah, but just there's, yeah, there's, there's definitely a handful of people out there that are like that. You know what I mean? Like, you could even say that, like, people like Mel Gibson and shit are like that now, too. Like, because they're on the outskirts. They're not working with studios when they produce shit. Or, you know, they might 
they they have an easier time getting distribution and stuff like that. But like, you know, it's there is a system out there to work. You as you know, the J like you can make movies outside of the studio system. It's not an easy thing to do, but not, it's not easy to make a movie. Period. It's very difficult. He and, and that's what's crazy too. Uh, just talking about factoids, Corinne shot Gummo in just four weeks during the summer of 1996. Most of the film being shot on the final week of production uh, due to the crew waiting for rain. So pretty crazy, man. A cult classic, just such an interesting film shot in just four weeks. And, and of course, a funny little tidbit, the last scene shot is the one that we were talking about earlier uh, with Corinne starring as a heavily intoxicated boy on a court couch with a dwarf. Yeah. Figures. It's- there's just, dude, there's so much weird shit in this movie that it's hard to, like, if somebody's like, Gummo, what's that about? You'd be like, um, uh, um. <laughs> yeah, because of course, Werner Herzog and Gus Van Sant love it, so. Yeah, I'm sure, I mean, that's, that's exactly the type, the type of, of stuff got that people that would, right. Yeah, 100%, so. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, the season three finale of Fridays at Midnight with Gummo. Of course, that will be this, this will be back in season four, just as Thursday Night Prime will be, just like the movies that made us will be. So don't worry, guys. We we have plenty more uh, to come from all of those, and they will all be back in season four. I can assure you. So. We are up against our uh, very last commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to be wrapping up the show and talking some goofs. So stay put. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, Yins, guys. That's right. It's your boy, the J. Once again, as the great Chris Jericho used to say, representing the Dubar question mark, the What's Real Podcast. And I am here today for local Pittsburgh area independent production company, Churchill Pictures. And the J can admit, for those consistently listening week to week, we have ads for Churchill Pictures. You may be rolling your eyes, but this time, this week, I have a gift for you where you can watch some of our feature films for free for the first time. For those that don't know, Churchill Pictures is based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, established from the bond of two childhood friends. Churchill Pictures envisions creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Check all the information out at churchillpictures.com today. And as I said at the top of the ad, your chance to see their two feature films for free. Just subscribe to YouTube's Churchill Pictures channel. Go to YouTube, subscribe to the Churchill Pictures channel, and you'll be able to watch the full feature film, the 2012 Silver Ace Award winner from the Las Vegas Film Festival, Deference. Deference, the full movie, is for free on our YouTube channel. Then our second feature film, The Unsung, is now available for free on Tubi. Tubi is a free streaming site, just has a little bit of ads, but you can get used to them. Check us out on Tubi. All you have to do is register for Tubi, or if you're already registered, go on ahead and sign in on Tubi and just search The Unsung. The Unsung is now streaming for free on Tubi. Check us out today at churchillpictures.com or YouTube deference, Tubi The Unsung, Churchill Pictures. We create worlds. And we're back, and it is time for the last week before it goes back on hiatus for the movies that made us. This week is my choice. I'm going with the 1995 Larry Clark-directed Kids, a controversial portrayal of teens in New York City 
which exposes a deeply disturbing world of sex and substance abuse. The film focuses on a sexually reckless, freckle-faced boy named Telly, whose goal is to have, a se- to have sex with as many different virgins as he can. When Jenny, a girl who he has had sex with, only once tests positive for HIV, she knows she's contracted the disease from Telly. When Jenny discovers that Telly's idea of safe sex is to only have sex with virgins and is continuing to pass the disease on to other unexpecting girls, Jenny makes it her business to try and stop him. Now, Larry Clark's Kids was extremely controversial when it was released in 1995, originally as an NC-17 film. Uh, It stars Leo Fitzpatrick as Telly, along with Justin Pierce as Casper, but also uh, features two Hollywood heavyweights before they were really known. Uh, The Jenny characters played by Chloe Savigny and Ruby is a very young Rosario Dawson. Um, Now, Larry Clark is a director who has gone on to make a lot of other things, uh, specifically the movie Bully, Ken Park, Another Day in Paradise with James Woods and Melanie Griffith, uh, one of the biggest bombs of all time in Teenage Caveman. But the, the fact of the matter is Larry Clark's work is always really subversive and different from what is out there at the time. And Kids is a movie that would probably either disgust a lot of people or go way over their heads. But it came out in 1995, and I didn't see it until probably like eight or nine months later when I was 15 years old. And the thing that was wild about this movie for me, and probably you, the Jay, because you're in my my generation, and a lot of the people uh, at the time when it came out, we didn't really see it for the type of movie that it was, but we identified with a lot of the stuff in the movie. Um, drugs, sex, just getting high, being fucking idiots with your friends. And this movie really put that stuff on the forefront. Now, one of the things that makes the movie a lot more appealing visually is it is completely filmed in Manhattan. Um, New York is one of those. We've talked about it when it comes to other movies here on the show, but New York City is such a setting in movies of the past that it almost comes across like a character itself and kids that is no exception to that rule. So with these teenagers who... You know, these were non-actors for the most part at the point, uh, you know, of the movie. Chloe Savigny was a club kid at the time. Uh, Rosario Dawson hadn't worked at all at that point. Um, Justin Pierce would show up in in movies like Next Friday. Um, But he was one of the main people, uh, him and Howard Hunter. If you know who Howard Hunter is, the Jay, he's the in the famous scene in the movie where the dude's doing the dick flap. Yeah. That's Harold Hunter. A page out of old J-Man's book. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a page out of all of our books. I think we've all <laughs> at least tried that at least once, by the way. It's painful. Don't do it. Believe me. Um, but Harold Hunter and Justin Pierce were two of the original members of the Supreme Skate Team. And a lot of people might not realize the Supreme Skate Team is the same thing as Supreme nowadays. Like the box logo t-shirts and the whole Big deal. Streetwear. That comes from a skate team, which... Harold Hunter and Justin Pierce were two of the first people on that team. Now, this is even weirder than Jay. I don't even know if I've ever told you about this before. Uh, I was a very avid skateboarder in the early 90s. Um, I would eventually quit as I got into junior high and kind of like, you know, other things took more precedent. But when I used to skateboard, you couldn't become professional until you were 16. 
Um, so what you had the uh, option of doing is being an amateur skater um, and you would skate for maybe, you know, a company, a skate park, things like that. I was considered an amateur skater and I skated for, uh, it was called cheap skates at the time. So anytime they had pros come in to do like a demo or something like that, they brought on like the skate shop amateurs to go do the thing with them, like the, the demo. Um, I was lucky enough one time to do a demo with Howard Hunter or Harold Hunter. I'm sorry. Uh, dude is extremely funny and extremely loud. But the thing that kind of blew my mind at the time is this dude was really skinny and he was kind of like lanky and tall. I've never at that time seen a dude that was as skinny and tall as him be being able to do the things that he could do on a skateboard. That was kind of like an anomaly to me. I remember that in person thinking that. Um, I didn't even realize it was the same person until well after I'd already seen the movie because um, I didn't know the background or anything. He looked familiar to me, but I just thought it was from another movie or something like that at the time. He's unfortunately no longer with us. And of course, Justin Pierce is no longer with us as well. Um, one died from a drug overdose. The other died from suicide, unfortunately. Um the movie is made up of a lot of street kids and skaters and stuff like that. Larry Clark um, kind of had Larry Clark was a photographer and he did some really interesting photography projects through the years. And he was working on one with skateboarders at the time when he would run into Harmony Corinne, who was 16 years old and kind of just hanging out in the area with the other skateboarders. Uh, he found out that Corinne was a writer and kind of tapped him to write kids so kid, they, that's exactly what he did. And a lot of these people in the movie were cast into roles, not because they were good actors, but because they were similar or at least reminded them of the character that the person was playing. Um, originally, the character of Telly was not supposed to be played by Leo Fitzpatrick. Um, he was supposed to be played by a skateboarder that was not allowed to do it at the time. So they had him take his place. And, you know, frankly, it's kind of a miracle that any of these people were allowed to work in this movie, because if you think about the fact that Larry Clark was in his late 30s, early 40s, just kind of hanging around with young kids uh, is weird enough to begin with. But then when you see this movie, there's a lot of stuff that gets brought up through the years about exploitation and stuff on Larry Clark's part. Um, I don't necessarily feel that way. Um, I'm not defending Larry Clark. I just don't think it was as grandiose of a plan as a lot of people think. Uh, Larry Clark is a pretty, pretty talented guy, but he's also a guy that's done a lot of heroin. He's had drug problems and issues like that throughout the years. So I don't necessarily see this as him seeing this as his big break like it ended up becoming. Um, it became one of the most controversial movies of the year. Um, it got the the daunting NC-17 rating um, that a lot of people were not trying to get at the time. I remember Madonna, of all people, kind of making a big deal about this movie on David Letterman. Uh, and of course, Harmony Corinne, the writer, would go on to have a handful of famous appearances on David Letterman, even leading to him getting eventually banned from The Late Show. Um, I won't get into the story on that one. But um, but it, his appearances were extremely memorable. Uh, Harmony Corinne would go on to make things like Gummo. He would make Spring Breakers. He would even make a skate video called Trash Humpers. That's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Um, Larry Clark would go on to do more movies, like I mentioned earlier, but kind of would fall off. 
Uh, I have no idea what Larry Clark is doing right now, and I would love to know that. Um, but Kids is a movie, like I said earlier, really caught my attention when I saw it at first. It kind of feels, I don't know how you feel, felt about it, the Jay, when you first saw it, but it felt like a movie that was not made by adults. It felt like it was a movie made by another person like from our generation and our era when that really wasn't the case at all. But the thing that I wanted to ask you, the Jay, is when you first saw Kids, was it as shocking to you as it would be like when you saw it later on or even when you think back upon it now? Or like what was your initial impressions the first time that you saw it? Well, this will tell you off the bat, Hey Ed, is I can remember specifically the first time I ever watched it, where I was and who I was with. Mm -hmm. So that should just tell you, because as many movies as we've watched and different things in our age and everything else that we, we bring up, that is a rarity for me, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. And I was kind of late on this. I remember all you guys talking about it. It was a big talking point among our friends. Oh, did you guys see kids yet? And of course, for me, it took me a, a bit to see it. Because you mentioned you saw it when you were about 15, because this came yep. out in 94. So you, you probably saw it like a year or two after it was like fully released and things like that. For me, I distinctively remember not even seeing it until high school. Okay. So you're talking 97, you know, so I'm, I'm seeing it a few years uh, after it had come out and after you guys had seen it and talked about it a bit. But again, I still remember the time and place. My ex-girlfriend at the time, Lisa's house, it was in North Braddock. I, I watched it with Lisa and a couple people. And to your point, yeah, I mean, it, it stuck with me. It was one of those movies that it was in my head for days after I first saw it. And, and that obviously is just a huge tell on the effect that it had it on me at that age. And I remember the feeling of some of the scenes in like halfway to three quarters of the way through the film that, that we, we talked about it with other film experiences, man. You just like feel kind of dirty in mm -hmm. a way, you know, and it's just, it is just such a punch in the fucking gut kind of film. And especially at that time, you know, again, you, you were watching it when you were 15. I was probably 17 when I watched it, you know, still a super impressionable age. And you're just starting to learn all that stuff. Like you said, that I think was our biggest connection to this film and seeing it in the mid to late nineties there when it was released was we're, where we were at in our lives Yeah. on top of it. Cause we were similar ages of these kids, you know? And, and like you said, first starting to do all this kind of stuff and, and the skating aspect as both of our past uh, uh, skating was a big, a big thing. You know, I always, I've brought up on the show before my cousin, Johnny getting me into skating and I was kind of like you, I ended up falling out of it, but that doesn't take away years of being in that world and, and always having a certain place of nostalgia for skating so that's just another layer on top of how gritty and just realistic this movie was is that like they're skating and drinking 40s you know they're yep. carrying the 40s yep. and the paper bags so Smoking yeah this, this, this had a, a huge impression on me see the thing that i thought really made an impression on me that i don't i think goes over a lot of people's heads is and you might remember this too the jay but when we skated it was really looked down upon it was considered a nuisance uh you could be skating as a kid somewhere and like fucking full-grown adults come out and almost fist fight you over it because you're fucking up their property or something so there was always this other side of like 
skateboard was all skateboarding was always dangerous because like you're doing crazy shit you could get hurt at any time but back then it was a different vibe like skaters were not cool they were not invited places people did not want them around so a lot of times the response that you got was a violent one and you would learn pretty quickly essentially in that world that like that is your only retort I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I didn't hit somebody right in the face with a skateboard before. Uh, I wouldn't be lying if I didn't say that I destroyed property or ran from police from doing it, too. And that was also a big wake-up call to me that doesn't really apply to the movie as much. That was the first time in my life I felt genuine, like, genuine disgust from police officers towards me, um, which really set up a mindset for me that I still kind of have to today. Uh, when it comes to law enforcement. But the, there's a scene in the movie, essentially, where uh, they're all skating in Washington Square Park, a big group of skaters. Uh, one guy decides to mouth off and, you know, kind of, like, get in their way, and they proceed to pummel the guy with skateboards and beat the living shit out of him, which is something that happened in real life. It came from a, a skate video that um, shows directly from the Brooklyn Banks. There's, like, a famous riot from there where a dude tried to grab a skateboard from some kid and then he proceeded to get his ass kicked by like 30 kids. Um, that was a big thing with skateboarding when I was in it. It was like, you were with the skaters that you're with. Anyone that tries to break up that circle violently is going to get met the same way. And they're probably going to have as many people as we have with us beating the shit out of people with skateboards because it wasn't like, no one was like, pardon me. Guys, you can't play here. You gotta leave. They'd be like, you motherfucker, get the fuck yeah, out! Like screaming. That's you. just how it was. So you were immediately set up for that type of mentality, and I think that that's something that this movie conveyed very clearly to me. Where I think people just wouldn't even notice that as a thing, but I'm like, no, I see it wholeheartedly in this movie. Yeah, and, that, and that's what's a big part of this too. Is like you know, you pretty much mentioned it. The, the kind of world that's created amongst the kids within New York of that time is how little adults are in this film at all. And, yeah, and that they, makes yes. it stand out. Yes. You know, that was a big aspect of this. I saw Harmony Corinne mention something that really hit home with me. I might've mentioned this to you before, but there, there's a show on vice. that used to be called, Ep it was called epically Latered, And it was usually about skateboarders and it's a really good show, but they did an episode on Harmony Corinne. And he's talking about, you know, writing kids and like what they were doing at the time. And he goes, you know, it's weird because like nowadays with the Internet and everything and social media, like kids are all connected all the time. And like, you know, they might have their parents as like their friends on Facebook and stuff like that. He said, when we were teenagers, it wasn't like that at all. We kind of just like wanted to disappear into our own world and not be bothered. Like we had our friends and the people that we wanted around, but it was all insulated and we kept it that we didn't want parents. We didn't exactly. want other people to know what we were doing or we weren't bragging about anything in school. Cause we just didn't know, want people to know what the fuck we were doing. It was our thing. Yep. And, and, and that's how we came up, you know, with our group of friends, it was, you know, very different, but very similar. You know yes. what I mean? To, to the characters in this. Yeah, like I wouldn't say that we, we weren't as ignorant as, as a lot of these characters, but we had our moments, don't get me wrong. Yeah, and believe sure. me, I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say this. 
it's not as funny now as a 40 year old grown man but believe me when i saw this movie as a teenager i thought it was fucking hilarious that the dude just wanted to fuck a bunch of virgins yeah and a lot a lot of the scenes and that's what's cool too man this this does have like that kind of overall story backbone that i talk about that you know jenny chloe savonnier's character she's a virgin and she knows telly is the one that gave her aids you know which is like one time she's and and that's his thing is to be the D flower guy and and have sex with as many different versions as he can. And, and so he's just like walking freaking, you know, disease ridden person that doesn't even realize he has it. And it's that whole thing. And she's trying to get to him to stop him, And it all leads to the climax. But I mean, how, how intense of a plot is that too? You know? Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff like that. Like it's just, you know, you're, you're witnessing what's going on in the moment. Uh, it comes across like a documentary, even though it's not. It's all been written. Um, they shoot a lot of this movie in New York City. The movie only had a budget of $1.5 million. And even in 1995, that was incredibly, incredibly impressive. Uh, this movie would go on the Cannes Film Festival and kind of blow up. It, it like You knew it was going to be a thing pretty early on. I even remember hearing a lot about kids before it was ever even released. Um, because it was super controversial and stuff like that. Um, so that's how it got on my radar. And then kind of as I found out more about it, I was like, oh, shit, I want to see this movie. And then when I saw it, I knew it was controversial and stuff, but I don't even – I think the thing that really surprised me was how much I identified with a lot of the stuff in the movie. Yeah, that's what's crazy. Um, it's, t- it's a tough movie to watch, but, you know, again, life is – talk about it a lot man everybody looks at things black and white and things like that there's just so many gray areas and you know ugly parts and, and this movie shows like the warts and all kind of thing yeah it's not trying to have a bunch of pretty teenagers like you know like it, like dude one of the things that i think is great is uh leo fitzpatrick who plays telly um he's gone on to do a lot of other works through the years he's worked with larry clark he's, he's he was in the wire you know, he's been on uh, plenty of Law and Order episodes and stuff. But um, the studio fought with him about, or not with him, they fought with Larry Clark about him being the lead character. And uh, and Larry Clark would not let it go. And he said, he was like, I was in a meeting one time with the producers and, and or the studio and Larry Clark. And they go, you know, I don't think an ugly guy works as this character. He has to be better looking. And then he, like Larry Clark flat out told him, he said, if he was a fucking good looking dude, he wouldn't be chasing pussy. That's the point. He's an <laughs> he ugly would get fucker. It. <laughs> he has, yes, it would all just flock to him. But that's because he's an ugly, goofy fucking dude. He's, he got to walk around 24 hours a day. Like, yo, what's up with some ass? Like, I'm trying to fuck. Like, because he if he's not solely focused on it, he's never going to get any. So I thought that was a great point. And I think that stuff like that, whether you have it explained to you or not, when you watch the movie, there's just an air of uh, authenticism in it that a lot of movies just don't have. Um, a lot of movies aren't willing to go that far or to those depths to to get a story across. And the fact that I love this movie is it's ambitious. And it's not ambitious on like, we had 12 bucks and we made a fucking Western. Like, I don't mean it like that. I mean, they were hitting points and top- topics and subject matter and shit at the time for us would be presented to it in a fucking health book kind of a way where it's like, exactly. this is, 
And this movie didn't do that. It's like, this is the fucking world. And it was like one of the first times that we got to see a movie that's solely based in our era with people close to us in age, if not the same age, that was like, here's how fucking shit is, man. And that was jarring for a lot of people, adults and parents specifically. And to me, I think that's one of the reasons why we still talk about the movie 25, 26 years later, because it has that much power. It has, And, and I still rewatch it anytime I get a chance to. I think it's a brilliant movie. I do know some of the bad things that people say about it, but I don't necessarily see it the way that they do. I think it's a brilliant film. I think it's one of the best movies of the 1990s as a whole. I think Larry Clark ingenious with this, as did Harmony Corinne. Um, this movie is the reason why Harmony Corinne still does stuff to this day. He's not had a, a whole bunch of big box office movies, even though Spring Breakers did pretty well. Um, but there's something about his artistic ability that keeps him in this industry and keeps people funding his projects. And I think that all solely goes back to kids because he was a teenager when he did this. So it's like a prodigal, like he's a prodigy to be able to do something like that. Um, and as much as people talk about him when it comes to the project, and rightfully so, I think sometimes miss the point that Larry Clark directed this. And it's his vision that made this work. And it's such a unique movie that it's almost impossible to see anything quite like it ever again. Exactly. And, and, and like I said in the outset, hey, you know, and that's how I'll wrap up my thoughts on it. What more can you say is that it takes me back to a specific t place in a specific time. I remember the people I was with that I watched this in 1997, you know, and, and can still remember exactly that setting in that basement in North Braddock. So that kind of says it all because there's not a lot of movies that I can tell you, you know, exactly that situation. Absolutely. And just something else to mention, too, uh, on the show up to this point. Um, this is probably the least available any of these movies that we is. Um, you're not going to catch this one on Netflix. Uh, it's not the easiest movie to buy. It is out there to watch. I'm not going to tell you how, um, but you can find it if you've not seen it. Uh, me and the Jay were kind of talking about this before. Uh, the reason why you most likely can't get this movie now is because a lot of studios are not willing to deal with the baggage that's going to come with releasing it. Um, there is a documentary uh, that just hit Tribeca this year. It is not released yet uh, widespread. It is called The Kids. It is all about the making of this movie and how a lot of the actors can't wait for that. Learned it were exploring the making of it. Um, I do not know the extent of it. I have not seen that, even though I really, really want to. Yeah. Um, but frankly, regardless of that, I don't see it really changing my feelings about kids. Um, it, it's one of the best movies of its era. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, I think it's brilliant. I think that it should be more widely available than what it is. Um, I like that it makes people uncomfortable. I like that people think that it's an inappropriate movie because not all movies are supposed to be fucking joyful animation. You know what I mean? Sometimes and the things like that that can exactly. be on the table. And it's a movie that I assure you taught some people in life a few lessons that they needed to learn without learning them the hard way. And I think that's Oof. also a good thing. Full circle on the podcast too, hey Ed, a handful of uh, what's real episodes ago a while ago now we reviewed the i think it was a uh, the 
released on Hulu. It was uh, Punky Brewster and her. Oh yeah, Kid Kid, Kid Ninety. Yep, yep. And we reviewed that documentary, and within Kid Ninety, the weirdest thing just out of nowhere, she moves from Los Angeles to New York, and then starts hanging out with a lot of members of the cast of Kids. Yeah, like in real life. Hunter, a lot of the skateboarders <laughs> yeah. from the Supreme. And they're and they're in the documentary, and I just. Uh, got a kick out of that because I, I knew you know how much you love kids i love kids and when we were first reviewing that and checking that out i'm like wow that came out of nowhere she's yeah. all of a sudden hanging out with the cast of kids and that's something that i didn't even know until i saw that. no that's what like, i mean I yeah that just came that. out of nowhere I, it wasn't like i read about it years ago and forgot about right. it it was just nothing ever came out of it until that did so that was also a nice uh, additional piece to that as well um, if you guys aren't familiar, I mentioned some of the other stuff that uh, Harmony Corinne and Larry Clark have made. Um, they're definitely worth checking out. Spring Breakers is good. Gummo is amazing. And, and I mean amazing. Like whether you like the movie or not, you'll still be amazed by it because there is nothing quite like that movie. And of course, uh, Bully is another one with Nick Stahl's yeah. performance as the Bully and the late. Yep. Uh, why am I Brad Renfro. Farting? Brad Renfro. Yep. Yeah. Really good movie. Um, you know, another day in paradise is another one too, that I don't think gets a lot of love. That's a good um, one. I always like that. James Woods. It's, it's a shame. I just think teenage caveman completely fucked up his career. Cause he really I, we couldn't wait for that because the kids. Yeah. I remember counting and, down to that and we just could not get through it. It was like, this is so fucking terrible. I don't even know what's happening here. So yeah, it was, but I mean, mess. but he also made Ken park, which is another one of those movies too, that uh, falls into the, the category of the Brown bunny with Vincent Gallo, where these are uh, regular films that actually have scenes of hardcore in them. Um, they're not pornographic movies by any stretch of the means, but it is in there. Um, it's also one of the reasons, too, why Ken Park was barely ever seen by anybody. And it's a pretty decent movie that Larry, Larry Clark made, but it's completely fell by the wayside because nobody was trying to touch it at that point. So it's kind of unfortunate. But, you know, sometimes when it comes to the movies that made us, we're going to about really widespread major films that everybody knows and then sometimes we're going to talk about things like this that you might not see as being somebody's favorite movie but believe me that's why we do the segment because we have our reasons and hopefully i was able to get across some of those reasons to you guys uh this week on this segment it's just really you know like if i had to show somebody in 30 years if they were like you know like what was your childhood like? And it's like, I would point them towards kids to be like, it wasn't exactly like this, but this is one of the closest things I've ever seen to what our experience was. And that's, that's why I love it so much. So uh, that is it for the movies that made us uh, from kids from 1995. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, we are going to take a quick commercial break and whenever we come back, we're going to be talking up some goofs and wrapping up the show. So stay tuned guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. What's real, everybody? It's your boy, the J, the blue-eyed lion himself in the blood flow and flesh spewing on the mic as I can only spew for this ad for Churchill Pictures and in turn, its website, churchillpictures.com. We are Churchill Pictures, established from the bond of two childhood friends. We envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. The most recent of our two feature films, The Unsung, is now available to own as we are in a partnership with distributor Bayview Entertainment, and they are helping us put this great art out to the world. So help support, share the word, spread the word, 
And thanks as always for any and all support. Go to Vimeo.com to rent or buy streaming on Vimeo. Go to the awesome platform, Amazon Prime. Rent or buy on Amazon at Amazon Prime, amazonprime.com. Or purchase the DVD for you collectors out there. You can buy the DVD from Walmart through walmart.com or buy the DVD from deepdiscountdvd.com. That's deepdiscountdvd.com for the unsung hope lives in the shadows. Check out churchillpictures.com to check out the trailer and all information today. Churchill Pictures, we create worlds. And we're back, and it is time once again for the movies that made us, this time from 1988, directed by David Zucker, The Naked Gun, from the files of Police Squad. When the incompetent officer Frank Drebin sees the ruthless killer of his partner, he stumbles upon an attempt to assassinate Queen Elizabeth. So the Jay's choice here is very timely. Um, <laughs> God, God bless the Queen. Hey, yo. I guess. I don't know. But... Dude, this easily could have been one of my choices. This is one of my favorite fucking comedies of all time. There are very few movies ever that even come close to this because fucking Nielsen is brilliant. And this is just so up my alley. And I know it is yours, too, because we've we've watched this movie a bunch of times together through the years. Of course. Yeah, I I had to. I was thinking of, uh, you know, our, our varying different choices. Uh, that we do with this segment here on the show. And I wanted to get a comedy on and I just had to start with the naked gun because talk about something that holds up, you know, that's why comedy is known as one of the hardest mediums to accomplish because people's senses, senses of humor vary so much. Like what, what, you know, trying to make somebody laugh is a difficult task, you know, ask any stand-up comic. We, we were saying earlier how professionals make very difficult things look easy, you know, and that's some of the top, stand-up comics of all time and they can even be off you know it is like you see a you know even like a a, name name your top comic Uh, they could do a a like they've all bombed right because it's just so hard like george carlin i was the usual brain fart and witching hour but yeah like a george carlin set that you're like man that just wasn't one of his best because it's such a tough thing all all that said that's kind of why i wanted to bring this up is that it just still holds up as i do uh, I'm a hundred percent on the movies that made us segment. Every movie that we pick, I, I watch it, You know, the J I, I always talk about, I start my own traditions. So I just watched the naked gun today, actually. Hey, Ed, in my office. And again, got to say it still holds up. Haven't seen it in a few years and it, it just kills me, man. There's so many one liners. There's so many gags. The, the slapstick is one of the things that get, gets me. Cause, cause again, that's, that's something that, that is tough with comedy. Like if you're not into slapstick comedy, you might think this is stupid, you know, one of those things. But I, for for one, freaking love slapstick, love physical comedy, and and that's one of the things that just kills me about this. Which which it's still crazy to this day that people reference this as being an O.J. Simpson film, you know, oh, and yeah. his character Nordberg in this because he does so good <laughs> he's and he's like lovable great. and he just gets hurt <laughs> the whole time and it's just awesome. And, and we could go on and on and we'll get through the the bullet points as we like to go deep 
here on the What's Real podcast, Movies That Made Us segment. And and you ran down the synopsis, hey, so I won't bore us with that. Uh, as we have been discussing, the film features fast-paced slapstick comedy, including many visual and verbal puns and gags. It's based on the character portrayed by Nielsen in the television series Police Squad and is also a continuation of the latter and is the team of filmmakers David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker, who I freaking love because, of course, they're also uh, creators of Airplane and Airplane 2. I mean, they were just the masters of the spoof. They even made a, a brief comeback years later with one of the scary movies that always stood out. I love the scary movie. I think it's Scary Movie 4 that they brought the you know Zucker, Abram Zucker team in uh, to do, which was hilarious. The one with Sheen. Um, yep. Simon Rex, that one was funny, uh, but I'm all over the place. But yeah, it just it just starts with, and and that's where I'll start and throw the ball into your court. Hey Ed, got got to start myself here with Leslie Nielsen, just all time classic. They talked about replacing him, you know. Speaking of Fletch, fuck with, that. Yeah, it's like, dude, you can't. It's the Holy Grail. You can't touch it. Nobody can do that role, but but Leslie Nielsen. There's people that can do takes on it like they do, but nobody's pulling that off. And and it starts and stops with Leslie Nielsen as Lieutenant Frank Drebin. Dude, I can't think of too many movies like this. I'm going to say a quote from this movie that makes me fucking cry laugh almost every time I hear it, and it's not even a joke. And you already know what it is, the J. Hey, it's Enrico Palazzo. (laughs) (laughs) And and saying that for further deeper trivia, I know you know this, but that is uh, yelled by the guy that plays Francis from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yep, which is goddamn hilarious. But yeah, I mean, there's just so many scenes and moments in this. And that's kind of like when I rewatch it, I almost just know. I mean, obviously, I know like just how it, it you know, oh, this is this is the, the, the part where he keeps the lapel the mic on at the news conference and goes and pees and farts. And, and just like the, the way everybody plays off of Frank Drebin, Leslie Nielsen is it, it's just perfect because it's the deadpan like he and the mayor in this like i forgot how important she is she's like always frustrated with him and she that actress does does so great with that role uh it's just such a a perfect thing shout her out nancy marchand who's an amazing actress she's in a ton of stuff but she's so good in this the way she reacts to him one just uh, again flowing i'll be all over the place pinballing how much i love the naked gun but just talking uh, while it's in my head hey ed the one scene where she's like and i don't want anything like last year in the South side to happen again. And he's like, when I, when I see five men stabbing a man in the park, I'm going to react. And she's like, that was Shakespeare in the park. You killed five (laughs) actors. Good ones. (laughs) And the one line, he's like, just think the next time I shoot someone, I could be arrested. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could, you know, we'll spend two days doing all the gags and, and going over it. Uh, but there, yeah, so much, so much stuff. Even, you know, we like to point out the, the things that make these iconic. And that's, you know, even the opening credits where they always have just a hilarious opening scene with Frank Drebin. In, in this case, they open up in Beirut with like all the yeah. international terrorists meeting. <laughs> he like punches the, he does like the, the three stooges with the Ayatollah. <laughs> yep. And, and it's just ridiculous. And then it goes into the, the opening credits, as I was saying, with the, the old uh, old school police 
car with the one siren and it just follows it. It goes like on a roller coaster through a women's locker room. And that's one of its trademarks, you know, all things that, that make classics stand out, you know, is worth, worth pointing out. And, and we always say, man, with the music, the opening thing, we'll have Cam play it like, dun, 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 oh yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, you know, it goes on and on. And, and on top Dude. of everything else, the fact that his, his love interest is played by Priscilla Presley, Elvis Presley's ex-wife out of nowhere. And she does great in this. And it's like so – I always thought it was so weird, even being younger. that Like I, I know she's done some other stuff, but this is like her only role. And she did so good. It's like she just – Priscilla Presley decided to act and be in the Naked Gun trilogy, and that was about it. She killed it. Mic drop. Dude, there's so many fucking things in this that kill me. Like this, this is one of my favorite little shticks between her and Frank. Frank, it's the same old story. Boy finds girl, boy loses girl, girl finds boy, boy forgets girl, boy remembers girl. Got girl dies in a tragic blimp accident over the Orange Bowl on New Year's <laughs> Day. Jane, good year? Frank, no, the worst. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, it's so good, man. The dialogue is just amazing, dude, and the acting is so the, good. When the dude's like, Cuban? And he's like, no, Dutch-Irish. My father was from Wales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's, of course, Vincent Ludwig, played by Ricardo Maltaban, who's great Ricardo in his part. Montabon. Everybody does their parts, man. George Kennedy, his right, right-hand man, Ed Hawken, uh, is, is excellent in this, too. Again, just playing uh, up to... Leslie Nielsen is just insanity as Frank Drebin. Uh, one of the funny things, the whole movie opens and he's coming back from Beirut and he gets off the plane, all this fanfare. And they're actually there for weird Al Yankovic. For no oh reason. yeah. He's like, <laughs> he's doing the speech and George Kennedy's like, Frank, they're not here for you. Weird Al's on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like waving. And all-, <laughs> like, all, all the deadpan shit, man. Cause she, yeah, she's like bringing the flowers in like to weird Al, but you know, Frank doesn't know. He's like, no, no flowers for me. Thanks. You know, all that shit. Uh, Dude, I just, I, I like the stupid, like shtick stuff. That of they course. Do in this. Like, Cause it's like, lightning fast. <laughs> like we were saying, Dude, when Ludwig's like, did you get to the hospital in time? And Frank's like, yes, he's in the intensive care ward at our, at our lady of the worthless miracle. miracle. Yeah. <laughs> And then, the worthless miracle. And then, of course, uh, one of the, the characters that goes all the way to the, the trilogy 33 and a third, the third installment, Pap Schmier, which is goddamn hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, Pap fucking Schmier. Pap Schmier. Yeah. And, and, and we got to say, too, the, the way everything comes together is with the story as well. And, and I remember like realizing that as I got older watching this from first seeing it as a kid and not picking up on as much. And you're like, dude, the stories like you, you follow as, as much as it's all these lightning quick things and all these gags and everything, the, the story's there, you know, with, with him oh, going yeah. after the, the drug dealers behind Nordberg and then everything that, you know, Vince, Vincent Ludwig's this powerful developer, but he's you know really a shady criminal. And then he, they come up with the idea with like Pat Schmier's technology to be able to control people for, for murder and all this stuff, we creates all these other gags, which, you know, we got to shout out some of the highlights uh, as we think of them. And speaking of that, one of the ones where Nordberg's in, in the hospital and the doctor that's taking care of him gets shot with what I was talking about. So he's going to end up killing him. So Leslie Nielsen foils his plan and he ends up on the run. And Leslie Nielsen chasing him ends up getting in the car of a first time driver, the driver school car. 
and I think is that David Attenborough, <laughs> like or David Attenborough's yeah. brothers. <laughs> is it David yep. Attenborough's? The I'm pretty sure yeah. the teacher and that whole scene's hilarious. Like uh, you know, he has her put put out the middle finger at the end and stuff. And uh, there's just so much. Again, man, I could get go on and on about it. Uh, as we put it on this segment, the movies that made us. It, it was one of those ones, and, and this is a recurring theme for this but what really entices me to want to see this stuff too and we've already mentioned a million times over how we're hbo kids hey Ed, this was another one it's not horrible but it's pg-13 and my mom like was like adamant f- for me to uh see it so it took me a little bit to get around that and, and that made me want to watch it like all that more she's like you can't watch this this is too bad dude. for you you know that's how young we were but yeah the first time i saw this dude i, I got everything and i was dying i saw this in the theater with my dad and he was probably dying dude i have never i don't remember ever seeing anything with my dad where he was laughing as much as yeah, he was there you this. go my parents just, loved it, it dude i don't know anybody that dislikes the naked gun movies i don't know how you can man it's so good like i said i could see the different senses of humor if you're not big on slapstick and you're just not witty picking up some of the lightning fast puns and everything or something like there's, you know, nothing's perfect yet, as they say, but I, I agree. I mean, I, this was so up my alley. These things never get old. All three of them, you know, I mean, I, I could have all three of these on this, this segment. If yeah. We get into season five of the What's Rule podcast, I might, but had to start here, as we always say with the original, uh, such a great one. And as we always do as tradition, and you could throw any other uh, tidbits you want, <laughs> yet, it covered most of it, but the tagline, you've read the ad, now see the movie, <laughs> which is great. Dude, I, I love this little exchange here with Frank and Ed. It's like, Frank's like, that's the red light district. I wonder why Savage is hanging around down there. And he's like, Ed's like, sex, Frank. And he's like, uh, no, not right now. We've got work to do. Yeah. <laughs> like one of my favorite one-liners. Do you want a nightcap? No, thank you. <laughs> you know, like, like, I, I, don't, I, I don't wear it, them. Yeah, I don't wear he's, them. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, they're, they're so... And the one when the Ludwig's like Drebin and Jane's like Frank and he's like, You're both right. Yeah, you're both right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's so just, great. Dude, the timing is like, dude, this is no joke. Right up there with like my my sense of humor and shit comes directly from like the Simpsons and Naked Gun. There's other right. stuff, but definitely from those two things, like like a motherfucker. Like I I quote this movie all the time. It's like, you know, like the part where he's like, ah, everything was getting more difficult. And like a midget at a urinal, we were coming up short. Yeah. Like just shit like that. Like it just doesn't, st- like everything is funny. Like the how he keeps, every time he parks his car, he forgets to put it in park. So it's like wrecking into shit. Yeah. The one, the, the one when the fight. <laughs> He, it's like the fucking airbag deploys and he's shooting at it. And somebody's like, did anybody get that license yeah, it's Neil plate? Says, like, anybody see the driver? Anybody get the license <laughs> yeah. plate? And then he tells, he tells the cop that's right there. He's like, get, get uh, interviews from all them. I have to uh, go in there now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's Dude, so much. He's, he's the perfect comedy foil. And it's so weird too, because there's been instances where like, if you see something like, uh, Grizzly or Creep Show, he's not playing a comedic role at all, and it's almost he's fucking just a good weird. actor, right? Yeah, because you're used to him as Drebin. And, and he started in in you know making stuff that he wasn't comedic dramatic in, roles, but, yeah. But I mean, dude, you're I would easily say this in the history of movies, 
you'd be find you'd be hard pressed to find anybody that has the comedic timing that Leslie Nielsen has in these movies. And same thing with even George Kennedy, who's fucking amazing in these. Great, and it all it all leads to the conclusion of the movies that made us episode with the Naked Gun to the conclusion of the film. Hey Ed, with the classic everything culminating at the Mariners versus Angels baseball game and Reggie Jackson and everything that culminates with, as you mentioned, Leslie Nielsen portraying as uh, Enrico Palazzo and butchering the <laughs> national anthem. And then he becomes the ump and he gets all hyped, which and everybody goes nuts hilarious. when he calls strikes. Uh, He's dude. like doing the moonwalk and <laughs> yeah. shit. And like then they, then they tell him that he has to delay the game. So he turns and gets like, he ends up fighting with the umps and everything else and to the whole climactic scene. And then, uh, you know, it ends with spoilers, folks. It's from the eighties. He shoots Vincent Ludwig in, with the, the darts we've been talking about. And some lady next to him's like, you just killed that man. And he's like, Oh no, he's just, he'll be fine in a few minutes. He's just stunned. And then he stumbles and flips out of the stadium and falls. And then this yeah. band goes over him and Ed yeah. Hawk and George and Kennedy is like, that's how my, he's like, this is making me sad. That's how my dad went. Dude, Kennedy's, he has some fucking lines in this one that will oh, like dude. punch you right in the dick. Like they come out of nowhere yeah, and he's, he's so good as the straight man. It's ridiculous. And again, there's all like the little stuff, like the little details with, with the dude at the police station. It's like the technology scientist that they go to and there's big owl. Oh. You never see his head. It's just always <laughs> yeah. his torso. He's huge. He's like, Oh, you got something in your mouth. And he's like, no, the other side and half a banana falls out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so dude, much. there's there. It's like, laughs per minute is like it off really the is. charts it's ridiculous how much shit they get like dude this is i'll be honest with you like you know you were saying earlier like how difficult it is to do comedy i see movies like this and it's like to me like fucking encountering albert einstein i'm like i have no idea how you can do this yeah. like i know i know you can make a movie that's funny or like some of the jokes land but like this much shit i'm like what kind of a fucking comedic genius can do all this because it's it's like off the charts how much stuff is in it yeah as, as we throw out the the factoids and everything in this segment upon its initial release the naked gun from the files of police squad received critical acclaim and has since been regarded as one of the greatest comedies of all time rotten tomatoes uh, for example as a scale has a rating of 86 percent based on 57 reviews the site's critical consensus reads the naked gun is chock full of gags that are goofy unapologetically crass and ultimately hilarious. And that's what matters. Hey, Ed, and for sure, this is something that I revisit here and there and always puts me in a good mood. Like I said, I was watching it today just by myself. I always say that's the test too, talking about comedy and laughing. Cause typically, you know, you could play off other people and stuff with, with laughter and comedy, but when you're by yourself and just laughing out loud, like cracking up, that says it all the ultimate test. Love this fucking movie. Yep, same here. And dude, I'm going to take a cue from you, the J, because even the tagline to this one is funny. The villain, even Mother Teresa wanted him dead. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> uh, gotta love it, man. But anything else you wanted to add there, the J, for this one? Nah, just rest in peace to Leslie Nielsen, man. You're a freaking American treasure. Yep, one of the all-time legends of film, in my opinion. Uh, that is the movies that made us the naked gun from the police from the files of police squad. 
We are up against our very last commercial break. Whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show, head over to the majestic waterfall of goofs as well. So stay tuned. We will be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Herman James with the What's Real Podcast. Finally giving me something to do here. It's been a while since I talked to you guys, but I'm actually helping them out doing an advertisement for advertisers. That's right. If you would like to advertise here on the What's Real Podcast and join the team, just shoot us an email today. We got cheap, easy, and affordable rates, and we can hook you up with some kick-ass advertisements. Just hit us up at Gmail. It's at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's What's Real Podcast at gmail.com join the team with me my brother timothy james the wizard behind the boards cam the j and hey ed it's the what's real team for some advertisers hit us up what's real pod at gmail.com today and we're back and it is time once again for another edition of the movies that made us today. We go back to 1982. This is a dual pick for me and the J, directed by Ted Kochef. We're talking about Rambo First Blood. When a former Green Beret, John Rambo, is harassed by local law enforcement and arrested for vagrancy, the Vietnam vet snaps, runs for the hills, and rat-a-tat-tats his way into the action movie Hall of Fame. Hounded by a relentless sheriff, Rambo employs heavy-handed guerrilla tactics to shake the cops off his tail. Uh, of course, starring Sylvester Stallone as John Rambo. We also have uh, in this one Richard Crenna uh, in his first uh, appearance as Colonel Samuel Troutman. Brian Dennehy playing Will Teasel, the asshole sheriff. Chris Mulkey appears in this one as well. Um, and David Caruso uh, with an early role um, is one of the deputies. Dude, I love First Blood for a very a whole bunch of reasons. Like first and foremost, this character became quite possibly the most iconic character of the 1980s, starting with this movie. Um, but it's wild because this movie basically doubles as something that would play in any cineplex, right? Because it's like a big star action movie type thing. Uh, but it also easily doubles as something that would play at drive-ins and grindhouses uh, because it's a you know it's a pretty rough movie. It's a dark movie, um, and it this is the one that really kind of sent the template for like the the dangerous loner type action film. Um, Stallone's really good in this one. Um, of course, in the other Rambo movies, he becomes kind of a parody of the character, but in the original. It, it's a really fleshed out, interesting look at a Vietnam vet who kind of feels like he's lost his place in the world. Uh, and they really do kind of get into that subject matter, too. This isn't just like a shoot 'em up bullshit action movie. Um, and that's something that definitely, you know, not only stands the test of time, but it makes this one really stand out because it doesn't, you know, there's a lot of themes and stuff going on in this one that are clearly from somebody who felt for the soldiers and stuff that came back from Vietnam. And it's interesting because of that alone, let alone what it actually is in of itself. They they build it up so well, hey Ed, with the fact of being the viewer, how Rambo is mistreated. And of course that's the whole point, but especially first watching this as kids of the eighties being pretty young, where it's like you're rooting for him so much. Yep. You know, and, and that's that's one of those things that makes it because as as I always state, w- which I always do my tradition here for the What's Real podcast, I always relive the choices we make for our film segments, this being the movies that made us. 
and watching First Blood this weekend. And uh, it's something I probably watched First Blood, you know, just a couple years ago. I could watch it every every fucking other week, to be honest with you. Same. It's, no, it's one the of the, the self-proclaimed Jay's pump up movies uh, for sure. But, you know, what else can you say about, you know, like you mentioned, creating the most pop cultural influenced character of the 1980s where like everybody states how President Reagan of the time was saying how Rambo was a Republican and stuff like that's how yeah. big of an influence that this film and in turn character became. And dude, one of the things that I'm always kind of reminded of every time I watch it, like I've, I've seen this movie, I don't even know how many times in my life. It's been right. a lot. Um, but dude, something that all, every single time I watch it, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's the background that is the Pacific Northwest. Yep. Uh, they're in the forest essentially it's like a town in forest area it really lends like a background to the movie with like this kind of like rustic old you know like workman's town kind of thing and like it really feels like the town's isolated too uh, which is really cool because one of the big things in the movie is they originally the sheriff originally does not want him in the city or in the town so they escort him out and he just comes back because again, with the landscape that you're looking at and everything, it's like, where's he supposed to go? The next city or next town is probably like 200 miles away and the guy's hitchhiking. And he came so, there to eat, so he's starving. Yes. So it's like there is a form of desperation there. And dude, it's surprising too that a movie like this, the way that the sheriff and the law enforcement is portrayed is more akin to something you'd see now in a movie as opposed to something you'd see in 1982 because it's a really unfavorable kind of look at like local yokel fucking cops that don't have anything to do or still miserable dickheads to people for no apparent reason. Uh, and of course, this is literally the antithesis of it bites them in the ass as Rambo. Like, it, the, the, dude, one of my favorite fucking things in First Blood or in any action movie, really, is like when Richard Crenna gets there and he's like, you better better get on the horn. And he's like, for what? He's like, you're going to need a lot of body bags. <laughs> yeah. That's what that's what's great. You have, like I'm mentioning, the buildup that shows you as the viewer how mistreated Rambo is. And he's just this dysfunctional loner and everything, just hitchhiking, just like a vagrant at this point, a nomad. You know, just, you know, he met, like the classic mentioning of people spitting on him at the airport when he came back after fighting for the country and that whole initial thing. And, and then you have him escape and then you have all the action that's set up and then you have Troutman come in and he starts throwing around all the buildup, you know, kind of quotes like that, you know, like all the time. And he's just like, your men don't stand a chance. And that, that's when we can throw in, of course, hey, Ed, both Richard Crenna as Rambo's mentor, Sam Troutman, and Brian Dennehy as Sheriff Will Teasley. What a who, dude, what Dennehy, a classic all time dick. Yeah, great. Oh, great performance so from Dennehy. Yeah, it's, dude, and that's, a, and you, we've seen Dennehy in a bunch of shit, but like, there's just really something too, because like, he plays like the older sheriff, the guy that you know, like even, before you even really find anything out about Rambo in the movie, you're like, this dude would fucking murder Dennehy. <laughs> and it's like Dennehy has all these dumbass deputies doing stupid shit on his behalf just because he's like an ego driven asshole. And he's literally picking a fight with a fucking vagrant who happens to be a Green Beret who might be the most dangerous person walking the face of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> which, 
And dude, it's not even like, and they go further than typical shit. Like, of course, you know, Rambo can fucking fight and he can, you know, uh, make weapons and shit. But like when they're showing those scenes of like, and I love that they, they do this because it, it enters more of a sense of realism in the movie. But like when he, when he first gets in the woods and he like finds some sort of clothing, finds a way to start a fire like he's doing the survivalist survival shit. shit yep it, it, and that's kind of the shit like you could say what you want about the fights and the weapons and shit but like when they start showing you that shit it's like i'm sure you probably kind of guessed going into the movie even if you've never seen it before but you're like oh this whole sheriff's department is fucked like <laughs> yeah. this dude he has no purpose other than to survive he doesn't give a shit about his own life. He's literally only surviving so he, other people don't beat him. Out of instinct. Like, yeah, instinct. Dude, that shit when he's underground fucking in that water yep. with all the rats and shit. It's like, and by the way, that was a real scene where he's just in water with fucking rats. Ugh. Like, that was Stallone's call on that one. Uh, yeah, I'm, and, I'm used to rats. And dude, I, I'll tell you right now, and it's bizarre as shit, but... Uh, Ted Kochif, the director of this, right? This dude's made a bunch of stuff. He made Uncommon Valor, Weekend at Bernie's, uh, Hidden Assassin, Billy Two Hats, Joshua, like a bunch of different movies, right? But like my man knew how to direct some shit with Rambo First Blood because like the way that everything is done and like the blowing up the gas station, like there's so much shit in this movie that is like, and you can tell it's not easy shit to direct. Like, there's some big sequences, like some massive action film kind of stuff here, but it's done on a smaller scale. So that's why I say, too, that it kind of reminds me of like a Grindhouse movie because in Grindhouse movies, you might see a, a gas station get blown up, right? But in an action movie, they're like blowing up fucking high rises and shit. So it's a little on a smaller scale, but everything works here. Um, the action sequences, them showing like Rambo basically running around the town at night and shit, like really, really good direction in this one, especially for what's what's you know people would consider an action film. Um, and dude, the First Blood is you know as responsible as any other action movie you will ever find for kind of setting the stage. Like I feel like Rambo was the prototype until 1988 or so like when Die Hard came out and then everybody kind of shifted over to that type of thing yeah, good but call. for a good like eight years or so like or around that first blood was the template that's what happens so, you know something breaks that glass ceiling you know and a, a lot of things that's what creates trends and fads one thing I wanted to point out hey uh, that always stood out to me since I was a kid probably the only competition of Dennehy's Teasel is of course Jack Starrett's Galt Who's a complete redneck asshole? Yeah, maybe maybe the only other character and, and deputy that's maybe even worse than Dennehy. and yep. it all leads up to Galt going against orders and trying to kill Rambo from the helicopter. And yep. Rambo climbs the cliff and he's getting shot at and he sees the big ass pine tree and decides, you know me with stunts, dude. He decides to just jump off the fucking cliff into the tree and it ends up you know, getting fucking Galt to go down into like the, the wind current and the helicopter pilots like, no Galt, we can't do this. It's the wind. He's like, fuck you, get me down there. And he ends up falling. And I yep. always remember that as a kid, that was like one of the first, honestly, dude, one of the first images I can remember of that kind of violence when Rambo kind of is by his body and picks him up and his face is all purple and bloody and shit. Yep. Great scene. It's 
Dude, and then you you can't talk about First Blood without talking about the, the breakdown scene towards the end. That's the monologue. Yeah. Yep. About being a soldier and how he feels worthless and fucking he, he was operating million dollar equipment, comes home, can't get a fucking job. And he's, you know, like fucking talking about his friend losing his fucking legs and he's yeah, trying like, to I can't back find together. his legs. Yeah, he I can't find, find his legs. It's really. Dude, and then he I, hugs Troutman because Troutman is the only semblance of family he has. And it's a. Yep. It's a colonel that kind of cares about him, but it's, you know, military shit. But yeah, he like ends up hugging him. And yeah, it's, like, and dude, it's an amazing scene. This might be the very first movie about a Vietnam veteran. And even though they don't say it, they're showing you post-traumatic stress disorder on the screen. Right. Like yeah, in exactly. the flesh. I don't know. This is something that I wish I knew offhand about the right. Like whoever, like the the writer of this movie essentially must have known someone or been related to someone or had fucking experiences themselves with Vietnam. And that was something real. Like, I don't feel like that was some sort of monologue that somebody came up with. That came out of something real, in my opinion. Maybe it was a news story they saw or something like But, like, the way it's conveyed, the way that Stallone does it, and it's funny because people shit on Stallone because the way he sounds and everything, and I get it. Like, for a long time, it was a running joke. But, dude, his verbiage and the way he talks and shit really adds to that fucking scene more so than like some sophisticated actor and i know he did his fair share of bullshit through the years but like i think a lot of times stallone doesn't get the credit i agree you know me i i always say that and not only acting he's a great writer and director yeah absolutely yeah He's, he's written a lot of shit and, dude, that's why I kind of put him over Schwarzenegger when for years I didn't because I just think as far as movies go, he's more of a creative than Schwarzenegger was. Yeah, like, I would agree with that. Yeah, you know how I feel Just about all around. Yep. So it, 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 they're different. That's what's funny because like they got compared a lot, but they're vastly different with who they are and the work that they do and shit like that. So, But, dude, I mean, I can pine on and on and on and on about first blood because it's just repeat viewings good performances it it's 93 minutes and it is dude and we talk about frenetic pacing a lot with movies like you're gonna be hard pressed to find something 93 minutes that moves like this motherfucker does because it just does not stop once it gets going it doesn't stop at all that's why it's such an easy watch every yeah every scene every it just keeps building and building and building and like you know what you're getting into, but it's like, I think that the character kind of pulls you around to the Rambo character that in ways that you kind of don't expect it to, especially if you're just used to like prototype action movies and shit. You'll see why this stands like head and shoulders with the best of the best because of that. And again, the, the sequels to Rambo, like Rambo 2 is not bad. Rambo 3 is pretty bad. And of course, like, you know, John Rambo and Rock, like, that shit's fucking tremendous. Um, but like, this one really stands alone, like, to me, out of the series as like just being absolutely phenomenal. You could, re- the rewatchability on it's crazy. 
Um, it's just, it's just one of the greatest fucking action movies of all time. And that's why it's like a dual pick for us here on the movies that made us. Yep. And again, I must say being kids of the eighties, you know, such Rambo and Stallone and first blood and the series, just a huge, huge influence and, and something we've watched on and off throughout our lives. Like we said, can't even remember how many times we've, we've watched it as we dip in hey, you know, to the what's real podcast movies that made us like we like to do with some factoids and trivia. Uh, the, the film, I think you mentioned this, based on the 1972 novel First Blood. Uh, another thing about that, though, it's a, a novel which many directors and studios had un, unsuccessfully attempted to adapt in the 1970s. It was uh, written in 1972, so throughout the 70s, this couldn't get off the ground until it was finally picked up uh, by this production team that got the rights and were able to shoot it and release it. Uh, initial reviews were mixed, but the film was a box office success, grossed 156 million, hey Ed, in 82. That would make it the 13th highest grossing film at the domestic Bro, box office. <laughs> and that, that's when that's when money was money. Money, you yes. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. Uh, as we've been discussing, its success spawned a franchise consisting of four sequels co-written by and starring Stallone, uh, even an animated television series, which I forgot about and I remembered, comic books, a novel series, several video games. And this 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 was cool. This is the trivia portion. Uh, so the large piece of rotten canvas that Rambo finds in the woods and, yep. you know, he cuts it into the makeshift coat, like you were mentioning in the survivalist portions and everything that was in fact, not a movie prop, but a real piece of rotten canvas. So, you know, goes yep. in with the rat talk found by the film crew during the movie's production. Since there was only one piece, Stallone joked about how the canvas became a treasured prop on the set. And even after filming ended, Stallone kept the rotten canvas and still has it in his possession to this very day. Dude, it, that's, you know, and dude, I love this too. This is a fucking, one of my favorite lines from the movie that it just, you know, I was just thinking it just popped in my head when like they're trying to figure everything out. And that one cop's like, Wayne hunting him. He's hunting us. Yeah, exactly. And it's like one dude is hunting a whole police department, yeah, which is funny too, because outside help. one of the uh, deputies, Mitch Rogers is David Caruso. Yep. Which was definitely probably one of his first Who's, roles. And he's really good in it for like what his character's. Oh his, yeah, his character like knows what they're doing is wrong, but he has to and go like, along with it. Yeah, he's just following orders and shit. And it's that's see, and that's the thing too. I think that they kind of show that there there is that realization in that character, and it's kind of cool that they gave it to a secondary character. He understands that he's just doing his job, and like once he finds out about him being a veteran and shit, he's like, oh fuck, like we're after this dude for just doing his job. Like he's just like me, even yeah. though he's nothing like him, but he's like, that's when he realizes like, we shouldn't be doing this. This isn't right. Like then Danny, he's like, yeah, shut the fuck up and do what I tell you to do kind of shit. Um, but dude, they, you know, this is also like in a unique time. Like, I think that the fact that this movie came out in the early eighties, like in 82 when it did, it's like. It was early enough to where the 80s weren't set in stone yet, but it definitely still had that 70s fucking influence and sensibility to it, which, you know, Stallone is wholeheartedly out of with Rocky and everything else. So, uh, you know, it it's it's a perfect time capsule for the like, I don't think this movie would have came out even five years later or five years before it. It just wouldn't have been the same. So it's, you know, firmly planted in 1982 is like the perfect spot. That if it wasn't for like, you know, the way movies get pumped out, you know, on their schedule and everything else, like if something would have happened or whatever, I don't know if this movie would have had 
the the impact that it did. That's a great point. I, I just have three bullet points for myself here to kind of wrap things up with first blood hate y'all. And okay. the first one uh, was just to round out the trivia notes I had because I thought this was really interesting where the first rough cut of the film was between three and three and a half hours long. According to Stallone, it was so bad that it sickened his agent and him to the point that Stallone wanted to buy the movie and destroy it thinking that it was a career killer. Uh, after heavy re-editing, the film was cut down to 93 minutes. This version was ultimately released, released in theaters. The ending used in the finished film was shot in March 1982 after the original one was deemed unsatisfactory, which leads me into my second point I wanted to bring up, which is, of course, the climax, and it's great. It goes into, as you had mentioned earlier, hey, Ed, really cool sequences of Rambo kind of running through the streets with his gun, you know, just doing some stealth action. He ends up blowing up the gas station, and then it's him versus Dennehy. You know, Dennehy climbs up to the roof of the uh, – police station to kind of you know get the drop on on rambo we all know that's not going to happen and, and it leads into the scene we were talking about with troutman and, and, and rambo just talking about nom and just stallone showing some acting chops and just that ridiculous scene which is is great which all leads into the last thing which we've discussed hey ed and that of yep. course is the film score composed and conducted by jerry goldsmith and the main theme it's a long road that shit's great. hard as fuck. Yeah, like, and they have the dude, orchestra that, version throughout, and then at the end yep. they have the version with lyrics, and it's just yep. it's hilarious at the end of the 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 credits and everything. It's great. And and dude, it's a brutal song. Like when you read the lyrics to it, yeah, right. Okay? Like it's fucking brutal. But dude, that's what I liked about this movie too. Like it is what it is. It's not a hero story. It's definitely like the anti-hero story. But you know. They work it well, and then it's just a tragic fucking character. So, like, in a movie like this, dude, it's it's just a downbeat movie. But because it's an action film, it's such a jarring experience because it's always like the hero walks off and everything's great. And, you know, Rambo wins, obviously, in this. But, like, you totally... And they show it throughout the series, regardless if you like the movies or not, like... It, life doesn't get much better for Rambo from <laughs> for the duration. Like it, he's always going to live a shit life one way or another, and that's like also the more tragic part of the character. But man, if it doesn't make for some compelling shit on screen, oh, just beautiful. And, and I just think this is always fun. Hey, Ed, let me throw this at you. Then uh, that's with the casting, and, and we always like doing this with the movies that made us where. The project was purchased by Warner Brothers and Robert De Niro and Clint Eastwood were each considered for the role of Rambo. I thought they were going to say the sheriff. Yeah. And uh, written tended to cast uh, Robert Mitchum as Teasel and Paul Newman as Rambo. <laughs> Can you picture Jesus. Paul Newman as Rambo? Uh, Dude, Newman, I, I have, Newman, I think, would have somehow made it work. It would be a yeah, way it'd different, be different movie, but, yeah. but it'd be like, yeah, I'm, I have faith that Newman's good enough to figure it out. But Paul had considered Steve McQueen uh, even back then, but then rejected him because they considered him too old to play a Vietnam veteran from 75. And then James Caan, Burt Reynolds, and Robert Redford were also considered. So, um, And dude, I, I don't know if you've ever seen this, and I, I, I don't have any confirmation. It's just something that I kind of thought about. Have you ever seen The Park is Mine with Tommy Lee Jones? No. So it, it's this movie. It, like This is more of a grindhouse movie type thing, but it's like a Vietnam veteran basically like takes control of Central Park on Veterans Day. And he's like, I'll give the park up when the, like, the day is over. 
and it's not good enough for the authorities. So like it, and it's basically like Rambo, but he's just blowing shit up instead. Like there, there's a few different things, but it's like a movie to me that like was 100% written, produced and everything after somebody saw fucking first blood. Yeah. But it's good. It's definitely worth watching. It's from 1985. Yeah. Uh, I, I told you I get influenced by this film every time I watch it. It's hard not to because it's like, dude, you can make a movie that's not even an action movie or about something like this. And you can still take stuff from it because it's it's a pretty interesting piece of filmmaking and it which gets thrown to the wayside a lot, too, because oh, it's an action film. But like it's, it's fucking really good. Like, well, that's there's well, a reason why it's such a big deal. And we, we're talking about a movie from 1982 to this day. Yeah, because I found a quote from Stallone from 85. And he said, quote, the original Rambo was so bloodthirsty. The story was so hard, so terrifying every step of the way. I think that's one reason the book took so long to get done. What I did with Rambo was try to keep one foot in the establishment and one foot in the outlaw or frontier image. I wanted him to be accepted by the mainstream, but also be a criminal. So he has some strong patriotic views and he loves the system. He just doesn't like a lot of the people who live and work in it. Yeah, man, I kind of myself wish somebody would make the original version. Just to see, yeah, yeah, like, like just just like the Punisher, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, like this motherfucker's just going ham on everything, like bashing skulls in, yeah, just because I want to see, I want to see if it would be, you know, better or worse. Like, I mean, I don't. Well, honestly, he he kind of gets there, like you said in the the Rambo film when he's in the uh, third world country. I mean, he's oh yeah, that is one of the most violent movies ever. Literally. Yeah, they weren't they weren't gonna have fucking absolutely decimate fucking police officers, but once they get them in the Middle East, it's like, dude, you can do anything you want. We don't give a fuck about these <laughs> yeah. people. Uh but that's neither here nor there. But the J for first blood, give us a tagline. Well, they they went off of the uh connection to Rocky, of course, where the top of the poster says Stallone, and then other it it says under it it says this time he's fighting for his life. There you go. So funny how that works. They were trying to still capitalize on Rocky in 1982. <laughs> yeah. Didn't really have to, though. Right. This one stands on its own. Yeah, created another franchise. Yeah, without a doubt, First Blood's one of the greatest movies ever made. That's why it appears right here on the movies that made us. So coming up next, we got a fucking. Uh, oh, shit. Yeah. Dude, Rob. Fuck it. Yeah. Uh, guys, Thursday Night Prime, uh, Showdown yeah. in Little Tokyo. If we make it through 1991, right. uh, we'll, we'll be back right after this, uh, right here on the What's Real Podcast. This is it from the What's Real Podcast for Height Apparel, your one-stop shop for fashion retail. For one-of-a-kind shopping experience, stop by Height Apparel. Founded by Eric Walker, our business brand is based around people who are of average height, 5'10 and under. We will have the season's greatest fashion picks. Whether you're on the lookout for men's clothing or accessories, stop by and browse our latest collection. That's Height Apparel, H-Y-G-H-T, apparel.com. Again, that's HeightApparel.com. And that's all we have this week for the What's Real podcast. We hope you enjoyed another September special this week, taking a look at the original, unoriginal What's Real podcast segment, the movies that made us. Next week, we'll be diving into another special as we roll through September. And once again in October, Hey Ed and the J will return for our Halloween extravaganza. Have a great week, everybody. Stay safe, stay healthy. And you'll hear us again next week on the What's Real Podcast. What's real?